Hello, and welcome back to the Tax Advisor and Biz Coach Success Podcast. The purpose of these episodes is to help entrepreneurs become more successful, avoid tax and other business headaches. Remember to tune in frequently as we will be sharing tips, secrets, and expert recommendations in how you can manage your finances, improve wealth, and grow your business. Please like, share, and subscribe. Here's your host, Liz Soria. Hi, Liz. Hi, Tamina. Nice to have you here on my show. Welcome, welcome, folks. This is Liz Soria, your host at the Tax Advisor Business Coach Success Podcast and Webcam for those who are watching us through my YouTube channel. And today, this week, I really have a very interesting uh, guest and someone that I've been wanting to talk to because I do deal a lot with other immigrants trying to come here to the U.S. And there's so many complex and complicated laws that I'm really off track with that. So no further ado, I'm going to introduce Tamina Watson. She is with the Watson Immigration Law. And Tamina, thank you for making the time to be with us. So uh, please uh, allow the audience to understand a little bit more your background and what makes you qualified to you know, discuss about this topic, please. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your show. I admire you very much, and I often have to work with tax experts, so this is just a delight, uh, an absolute delight. Thank you. Um, I'm an immigration attorney in Seattle, Washington. I'm an immigrant myself. People could probably tell from my accent. I moved here in 2005 and then started practicing immigration law in 2006. So it's coming up to um, 10 years of my own law firm, uh, Watson Immigration Law, that I started in 2009. Uh, my practices are primarily business immigration. I also help with family-based immigration, citizenship, um, and little bits and pieces of different things that come up, but primarily business-based. And what does that mean? It means businesses that are trying to um, actually start businesses in the U.S., or businesses that need to hire people to work for them. And a segment of that is really people who are coming here to start their own businesses. And the, and the visa categories, as you mentioned earlier, are pretty complicated. You know, you have to go through a visa soup, often that we you know, refer to it as a soup because you go from A, B, C, D, all the way to S and T. And you have to see which visa categories are the best ones for your client. And uh, the, 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 the investor visas, particularly, uh, ones that often we would use for people from certain countries. And so, uh, you know, I'm very grateful you invited me to talk about investment visas because those are some of the topical um, visa categories of the moment. And there are several reasons for that. But one of the reasons that one of the particular investment visas known as EB-5 has become even more popular than before is because this administration has caused a lot of issues with the special uh, specialty occupation, the professional visas, particularly known as H-1B. Yeah, you know, the H-1B visa is primarily used for professional skilled workers. And so doctors, lawyers, tech folks typically will use them. And a lot of people from India, for example, 
uh, here on H-1B visas. But this particular administration has caused a narrowing of the visa requirements and the way in which they adjudicate their cases. So there is a specific interest in the Indian community in the last six months that has, um, you know, ballooned somewhat, if you like, because those H-1B workers are now looking at the EB-5 visa as, a, as an alternative to um, getting a green card. So the EB-5 visa, which is an investment visa, has been uh, popular for some time, but it was primarily being used by citizens of China. Um, a very large portion of people from China were using them. It doesn't mean that other countries, were, citizens of other countries were not using them. It's just now there's an interest from a specific group that's giving rise to it. And one quick question in between, um, because this is, this is a very, like I said, a very profound topic. It really is. And, and I know it, it's <laughs> not very easy at all to, to sometimes comprehend. But when people are trying to obtain, whether they're coming here for business or as an investor, is there a difference between the visas that they should be applying and what are the requirements? Because you're talking about the H-1V, is that correct? Um, yeah. The difference between someone coming to be part of, let's say, a C-Corp, right, which we accept foreign, you know, uh, uh, owners into the corporation, and that could be across, you know, any country overseas, including Canada, Canadians are very typical. They come and open up C-Corps, right? Um, and then the other alternatives, investors, uh, don't they require for you to have a capital? And to have that's a, capital? a very good question. Please so typically, yeah, that's a very good question. So, you know, uh, there are two ways of looking at it. You often have to strategize with the client and the short-term goal and a long-term goal. Okay. A work visa can often be obtained relatively quickly depending on how quickly you can get your business up and running and how quickly you can uh, file the application and so forth. But there are several, several types of visas to look at, depending on your particular um, background and your desires. So if just you briefly, have, I'm sorry, two minutes, just briefly, if you can touch. Yeah, so the there's the L. There's a difference yeah. between the two of them. So so there's an L1 visa. That means that you have a company abroad, you're transferring yourself or an employee to the US, and it's a, for a multinational transfer. That's an L visa. Uh, there's the H1B visa where you're coming here as an employee. Sometimes it can be for a startup, and there are nuances around that. Uh, but you have to show the employer-employee relationship uh, between yourself as the owner and the business. And so there are issues around that. But the, one of the more popular ones, particularly for Canadians, is something called an E2 visa. The E2 visa is actually an investor visa. It's a treaty-based visa. I was going to so, say yeah. So America has treaties with various countries, not all of them, but a lot of them. And for those treaty countries, you can either have a treaty trader visa, you're trading goods or services between your country and America, or you're investing in, a, in America for a for-profit business. Now, it's a very good question about uh, capital. Yes. Right. Uh, they have to have it, don't they? Absolutely. I mean, whichever visa you are using, you, you have to have money to show that you're going to be paid 
a salary. But when it comes to the E2, and today we'll specifically talk about the investor visa, which is the E2 visa for the actual work permit to be in the US. Uh, and so you have permission to work for a certain period of time. Right. And then often people would want to get a green card, which is a permanent residence, um, you know, permission to be in the US. Right. And so often for our clients, we are looking at a short term goals and long term goals. Excellent. Now, the E2 visa is uh, one of my favorite visas, actually, because what I find is that the E2 investors, they're savvy professionals you know hard-working professionals who get it you know they're inspirational or in on many many levels and uh, so what we what we do what you have to show for an e2 visa is that you are going to have a business that is active and operating and I, I say to my clients that you are setting up a house your house is your corporate structure you have to have it ready and this is when they go to somebody like you you know, tell me what is the best type of corporate structure for me? What is the best tax um, option for me? And, you know, I don't do that. I go to people like you, say, hey, client, go speak to Liz. And, and, she can way, tell Selena, and I go to another attorney for them to actually structure the legality of the, of the business because I don't even touch that because to me, I think that's very important. And a lot of people have confusion when it comes to entities, when uh-huh. it pass through or whether, whatever it is, that they really need to have an attorney because I've seen a lot of people going online and trying to do things, and I'm sure you probably be getting that too with people applying things online and trying to get visas and filling out the paperwork, you know, incorrectly and being denied and rejected. So and this is really important. This is where we really, and this is why I bring experts like yourself to my show because sometimes we need to invest and we must. Because if we, we're really doing something that is more in a professional level, it's not worth wasting time because we know we cannot replenish time. Money we can, but not time. So I agree with you. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure yeah. you've been through this kind of situation. People try and go online and they think they can you know, fill up the application and they're making all these mistakes. So going back to um, the phase of the investors that are trying to plan here. So they have to have the structure. That means that the business entity has to be uh, an existent and active prior right. to time. Interesting. That's, That's right. right. That's right. And just like yourself, I mean, I, I actually work very closely with a corporate attorney. So when clients come to me, I say, well, you know, I'm going to tell you this. These are the things we need to do. Now go to the speak to the corporate attorney, then go speak to the tax expert, and then go speak to a business plan writer. And, and so I sort of am the beginning of the of the process and i'm in between everywhere until the end but in between there are many professionals and what i tell my clients is do this once and do it right thank you so you're absolutely right you have to go to the experts and make that investment now coming back to the structure that structure is all of the experts help you with that and so that's in the e2 context you have to show your businesses Um, active and operating then you have to show that you've invested your capital and uh, as a rule of thumb your next question might be how much is the capital oh yeah what are the minimum requirements i guess in mm -hmm. this case because they have to be liquidity wants. i mean they have to have the amount sitting somewhere in bank account am i right about this or that's that's right but in an e2 context the law does actually not say how much what the law says is it has to be substantive, substantial, substantial and proportionate to the business. So if you are buying a hotel, 
$50,000 is not enough. But if you're buying a grocery store, maybe $50,000 is proportionate to the, the business you're buying. So it depends on the business. But if you talk to any immigration attorney, the rule of thumb is $100,000. Wow. So if anybody is coming, we say you have to think of it as $100,000. It could be a little bit less. But that's what you should, you know, go away with in your understanding. Now, that $100,000 means that you just don't put it in the bank. It needs to be spent as much as you can. Good point. So, Very good point. I like you bringing yeah. that up. Mm -hmm. So the government actually says it has to be substantial and proportionate. And it has to be at risk. So putting it in the bank account is not risky enough. No. So what I tell my clients is you've got to try to spend that money. If you're not buying a grocery store or whatever that business might, might be and you're setting up a new service uh, business of some sort, you've got to spend it. Anything that you spend on the professional services, whether it's me, the corporate attorney, the tax expert, the business plan writer, all of these expenses add towards that 100000 and then one of the biggest chunks they can spend is on leases. So you want to have a six-month lease, and that becomes a big chunk. And everything that they spend, you've got to start keeping note of it. So the government is looking at the investment, mm -hmm. and they're looking at have you. And so we actually say they want to see the source of the funds. Where did the money come from? And you've got to show five years of income at a minimum to be able to show this is where the money came from. Now, if you're selling your very house, interesting. very interesting. I did not, I was not aware. Like I said, I'm not into too much into the immigration. The majority of my clientele, honestly, I mean, they are, they have green cards, so they're ready, you know, you as uh, mm -hmm. citizens, uh, but that's very interesting. So yeah. consistency yeah. of their income, approval of income. Wow. They want to make sure that this money is not obtained in any, through any criminal activity. Laundry. Yes. <laughs> that's, right. that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And so often people will sell houses, for example. Um, uh, you know, in, in a number of ways they can have their sources. And I, at our office, we help create a chart, diagrams. And sometimes it's simple. Earn the money. And then we have to show how did it arrive in the U.S. So you're showing the path of being. So, like, often people... If I give you the money, you know, in cash, please, Liz, please do. And then, <laughs> and then you, the money. that's right. You know, I mean, you know, it would, it, it, you might keep it. And then, so the government, or you might actually you not give me as, a, a, enough back. The government does not like that. You can't use it transferring that way. You need to have it in a traceable manner. So wire transfers, you know, um, maybe one person changing hands is probably traceable, but that's not what we want to do if we can help it. And so then they were, so they're seeing the source, they're seeing the path of the funds, and then they're seeing it at risk. It's been invested. So this has to be a trace. Very important. So very, only, very so let me, let me, let me kind of recap this for the people who are listening and watching, you know, the, the episode. So number one, in the majority of visas, I mean, so they do require, you must have a capital and usually, like you said, uh, you know, a standard just to say, because there's nothing on stone. There's nothing really on, on paper that says you have to have this, but a hundred thousand to start with minimum five years of proof of income because they want to confirm where the money came from. Um, and then once you have it in the account, obviously you cannot just sit in there like a cushion. You have to utilize it uh, and reinvest it for the economy, really, in the United States. That, that's really the purpose behind it, because if you're going to have it sitting down in your account, because all your purpose behind your intentions 
or just to get that visa, it's not going to work. Absolutely. And just to be clear, this is for the E2 visa context. Only. But only. If you look at the EB5 context, there are some nuances to this, but most of what I say applies to the EB5 context if it's a direct investment. And maybe that's a discussion for another day. But sure. in some, some of the, the, the source of funds, path, all of that is in essence, the same in the EB-5 context. Um, now, the government, I want to touch on something that you say. It's very important. When the money is sitting in the bank, the government will be saying, well, you're just going to take the money back. And we did have a case in, in a wholesaler example, for example. She was uh, selling um, wholesale clothing. And, uh, you know, if you're buying wholesale clothing, right. you're buying a lot of clothes. And so when we applied for the visa and the money was sitting in the bank, the government did come to us say, hey, money sitting in the bank. So then we had to show contracts with these wholesale companies saying, as soon as a visa is approved, we're going to sell you $50,000 worth of clothes. But we had to explain saying, look, if you don't approve the visa, she's going to be stuck with $50,000 worth of clothes. And therefore, it's too, you cannot do that. But we have it all earmarked to say she's going to buy it. So there are sometimes strategies involved depending on the type of um, business that you are operating. Type of business and the circumstances. Okay, so it's a little bit layaway. There's a little flexibility there. Okay, that's, that's very interesting. Now, with investors' visa again, and, and, and are there easier for them to get the green card versus to other visas? Um, what, what's um, it, it depends. So the E2 visa, which is an in treaty investor visa, it's a non-immigrant visa, meaning that you do not or should not have the intent to live in the U.S. Wow. But for a lot of people, and the E-2 visa does not have a direct path to a green card. But what we often have done with our clients is the E-2 investment that was made in their business, right. whatever that business was, could be added upon to have the EB-5 green card. Oh. So if you have invested the $100,000 in your own business, and if it is in a poor area where 500, and I'll come to that in a minute, because location, location, location is everything in the EB-5 context. They can add to that money, okay. and then they could apply for a green card. But often you have to re-strategize on how you are going to get that green card. And now I'm going to finish up on the E2 visa. Please Once the, the, the application, they have to have a business plan to show that they're going to be um, uh, creating jobs and fun, uh, you know, revenue. Helping and the economy. Helping come Exactly. So in other words, exactly. they, they don't want immigrants, and, and I want to make this very clear, because I think the government, any of governments like that, by the way, by all means, is not only United States of America. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we come here for, for the American dream, as we call it, right? Uh, but the, the reality is that, you know, you, you're here, you come in here to really um, uh, do a contribution to the economy, not, not, not to take from the economy, because if not, they have no interest for you to come here. Simple. That's right. That's right. And, and this is why the E2 has been a, a, a visa that has been favorable to embassies. Now, when it comes to the application, the application can be should be made at the embassy for the E2 visa. Unlike different work visas where you apply with the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, commonly known as USCIS, um, you can change your status here. There are different issues involved and it's a case-by-case -case scenario, but 
you don't want to change your status here unless your back is against the wall. Because when you change your status to E2 in the US, you don't get that visa stamp. Mm. So when you travel outside the country and the embassy looks at your case, they look at it with fresh eyes. They don't put a, it's not a rubber stamping of the visa. They have to look at it afresh. So if you have a business already up and running and the embassy denies it, you're now in a big pickle. So for an E2, it's always best that you apply at the first round at the embassy. And so when you come in, depending on the country that you're from, your visa could be for one year, three years or five years. But if it's a five-year visa, you come into the U.S., you're allowed to stay here two years at a time. And so you leave the country and come back and you get another two years until your visa stamp has to be renewed and then you renew the visa. Now, I'm going to move on to the EB-5 visa, which is a green card application. And this was the history of this is it was created in 1990. And again, it was for economic development. And in 1990, that's when a lot of the visas were reshuffled and created, basically. And in 1992, the EB-5 program was carved out to have a pilot program called regional centers. Mm -hmm. So when people hear about EB-5s, they often these days uh, know mostly about the regional center. Now, the regional center is essentially um, private people getting together for want of a better way of explaining it, saying that, hey, USCIS, we're going to make this poor area nice and developed, and we're going to have 30 people put $500,000 in because that's the minimum requirement. There is a minimum for that. And we're going to create 10 jobs with each $500,000. It's like a pool investing then group, isn't it? Yes, exactly. The regional center is like a pool investment. And when you look at a DB5 visa, the whole point is that you are going to create jobs. The the law stipulates that there is either $500,000 of investment or 1 million. And the 500 is for a poor area, which is a high unemployment area or a rural area, or anywhere else, which is 1 million. And these numbers could change. Congress has been wanting to change them and increase them for a while. It just hasn't happened. Um, the, uh, and the EB-5 investment could be in two ways as well. It could be in the pooled investment, right. generally known as regional center, or it could be in your own business. So the E2 investor who started a hair salon, for example, now has a string of hair salons, let's say, as an um, with an umbrella company and could easily create 10 jobs. She or he could have an EB-5 through that or a grocery store or a supermarket, a hotel. The difference is in the regional center context, an economist will come in and say, I have analyzed this business model and I can tell you that through each investment, there will be 10 jobs that are created indirectly. Now that means because your business is now up and running, it's going to create peripheral jobs. You know, um, and so you don't have to prove with a W-2 or an I-9 or payroll. You're not required really. That, that's not in the re- 
Not in the regional center context. Okay, not on the regional side. Okay. Because in this one, the economist has already um, uh, verified that once the investment has been made, the jobs will have been created. Okay. In the direct investment context, where you have the hair salon or whatever other business, you must show the W-2s and the I-9s. Now, the I-9s are important because you're showing that you've created 10 jobs for American workers. That's U.S. citizens or green card holders, okay. not visa holders or undocumented folks. And the W-2s go to show that you have given them payroll and these are your 10 people. Now, what's interesting here is, um, you know, up in the regional center model, uh, well, let's backtrack a little bit more. 2007, 2008, uh, when the recession kicked in, mm -hmm. you, know, you must remember that, Liz. Oh. <laughs> for all of us, for all of us who have been here in the States, I think that's probably one of the worst times that we have ever had. But we survived, we're here. <laughs> we survived, we survived, and let's pray that we continue to survive. But <laughs> what happened in 2000, happened from 1992 to 2007, the EB-5 program was not used as much. There are 10,000 visas that are given out for these, uh, this category. Maybe three, maybe 4,000 were used, but not all of them. But in, when the recession kicked in, banks were not giving loans out to businesses anymore. Right. So the construction industry was very creative and realized that they could get investors from outside the country to mm. become their you know, alternative to the banking industry. Hey, Tamina, they had good attorneys like you, right? Were you advising them that? I know. Well, they, well, they, they had to, they some, had I was to catch 22 behind there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they did. And so from then, the EB-5 became more popular, particularly because uh, the Chinese citizens were then coming into money and they were looking to invest in America, like they've done elsewhere, of course. And so the EB-5 program took a different sort of increased interest from around the world. And so in terms of process, um, in the current um, processing times under this administration, everything is taking significantly longer. Whether you're getting a green card through marriage or getting a green card through EB-5, it's all taking double the time. But in terms of processing, um, whether you're in the U.S. or outside the U.S., there's a form called I-526. I-526, okay. Mm -hmm. And that form would want to know where are you investing your money? All the things that we just talked about, that structure, whether it's a regional center or your own business. They want to know all of those, um, that information. Then they want to know where did the money come from and, you know, where is it invested? And, and so all of the information that the visa requires will be inputted into this form. But the form itself doesn't get you the visa. Now, is that the, in, in, uh, I call it startup point. Is that in, in, in this nation where you start, that's the point, that's where they need. So the for very first step, and I'm sure, I mean, again, this is something that I, I really believe that, you know, you do need professional help. I mean, you need someone to establish the paperwork, do it the right way. Uh, because the more deep you're going into this, um, I mean, uh, definitely I can see how, how <laughs> difficult it could be the terminology and why we need experts like yourself and helping out. And by all means, I wanted to bring up also because I have had a few, I've been very privileged to have quite a few amazing expert guests throughout my you know, entire show. And uh, one of them is actually as an attorney and she specializes also in just uh, legal structure formation. So, you know, 
who knows, uh, anybody who's listening, they can definitely, uh, you know, get back to it. It's one of the earlier episodes that I interviewed. Uh, what I wanted to bring up that I think is important because a lot of people besides the investor and the business that is coming here, um, a lot of people, and I wonder, because I think this is important, I do a lot of e-commerce and real estate. That's one of my biggest niches, and also the medical, you know, healthcare. But with the e-commerce, a lot of people are not realizing that just because they open a C-corporation, because they can prove they have funds, that they are willing to spend it, right? Because that's the big catch-22 right there. If you're not going to spend it, don't call. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty mm-hmm. much what the government's telling you. We don't want you here. And it makes mm-hmm. sense, by all means. I mean, the government here, as we know, well, that's a different episode. <laughs> it's not in the best shape economically, you know, well, the trillion dollars in debt, right? But the fact is that what I find interesting is that now we have so many issues because you talk about the structure, you talk about, you know, bringing uh, legality into the country as they, they're coming in. But also we need to look at the tax side, which is what I help the most. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I did want to kind of ask you, and I think if, if the audience would be able to do is, Unfortunately, there was a situation for a very long time that people thought, well, I get married to a U.S. citizen and I resolve my problem. Um, how, how, how much has that changed in the last couple of years and how strict has that become? Because that was like a little bit cutting corners and trying to make it through the back door, I call it. You know, that's a really good question. Um, getting married to a U.S. citizen... I, and I've said this many times to people, it's the easiest, quickest, cheapest way to get a green card. It's, it's where I'm bringing this up, but I know it's changed a lot. I've heard a lot of rumors yeah. that there's someone professional like you. Yeah. Like, people hear this, they, they understand that things have changed, and they're not as mm-hmm. it used to be. Now, all of that is true if it is a real relationship. What? If it's not a real relationship, I don't want to know. Go find somebody else who might help you. If I get an inkling that it's not, true, then I have to step away. But what this government is doing is, up until now, things haven't changed so much in how they're looking at cases. It's the processing has taken a lot of time. But one of the best things about the marriage visa has been that, let's say you've come to the US, you came on a tourist visa, or some other visa, and now you've let that lapse, and you have become um, out of status. The only way in which one can, quote unquote, fix their status in that situation is through marriage to a U.S. citizen. You cannot get an E-2, you cannot get a work visa, because all of those require that you have maintained your status. Mm -hmm. And so through marriage, that has been fine. But in the last three weeks, particularly, the government has brought in many different policies. And actually, to be honest, in the last two years, we've seen policies just coming out of our ears. So many different policies. It's made immigration lawyers' lives a living hell. <laughs> yes. yes, it has. It's, it's, very, it's been very challenging. I know what it's supposed to be in your shoes because with taxation, I'm sure you heard with the famous Trump in December 21st of last year, boom, they hit us with all these new updates. Oh my gosh, wow. Yes, exactly. But ours is just ongoing. So last in uh, September 11th, the government uh, implemented a new memo called uh, the the no RFE memo, which basically said, we're not going to ask you for things uh, anymore if we feel that you're going to get denied anyway. And so RFE means request for evidence. 
And so in a marriage case, if you have not given them some of the basic documents, you, you are now going to see a denial of your case. And so that's a challenge for people who don't work with lawyers uh, because often, and I've seen this over and over again, that they would have used a form that is not correct or they checked a box that is not correct or they've not given a compulsory document. And so instead of rejecting the case in which they do not take your money, they just give it all back saying, hey, we can't keep your case because you didn't give us ABC. Right. They're now going to keep your money and say denied. So that's a big deal on the on the change and how it's going to affect marriage cases. Excuse me. So it's non-refundable before it was. Yes, it, it, that's a good word for it. If if you have given the government something that they cannot accept because you have missed an important document, okay, they could they they would have um, in, in given it back to you, saying, I cannot accept it, we're rejecting it because this compulsory thing was not given to us. But now when you do that, they will basically deny it. And so you could potentially reapply, but it depends on your circumstances. You may not have enough time, you may be facing deportation, you may be um, lack of funds at this point because you spent it all on the first round, many problems with that. But to top that, as well. October 1, the government implemented a new uh, policy that if you do not have underlying status and your green card application is denied, right. we are now going to deport you. We're <gasps> going to initiate the deportation proceedings. Why is it that we, I'm sorry to interrupt, why is it that we haven't been really hearing this kind of news in the media? Because it's, it's, it, it just started October 1. Wow. And not, not a lot of it has been implemented yet. They've just rolled it out. And essentially, it's a way for them to start deporting legal immigrants. But they're starting. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I got you back. Can you hear me? I'm sorry, everyone. I think we got to for a couple of seconds. But I got her back. So. Yeah. Okay, good. I'm so sorry about that. Basically, they're saying that the form that gets you the green card, the I-485, that is going to be, if that is denied, yes. they're going to initiate the deportation proceedings by providing the document that starts the proceeding for the notice to appear, NTA. And people who often come to the U.S. and they try to extend their status or change their status, that form is called an I-539. And they're saying that if that is denied, we are going to start the deportation proceedings. So you haven't heard of it likely because it's very new. And you will start to hear about it when people are actually affected. And it's going to happen before you know it. So that person who used to get a marriage green card, who perhaps came in, you know, 2014 and then overstayed, that person would have been able to get a green card without worrying about it so much. And even if it were denied, eventually they could have started um, at the deportation proceedings. On, on many occasions, they wouldn't actually start because there's a process for it. USCIS gives the file to the Immigration Customs Enforcement, and then typically ICE would be doing that step. But what this administration is doing is saying, hey, you USCIS, Right. You need to take this action now. 
So if an I-485 is denied for that person who has overstayed and now getting a green card wow. is now going to be looking at more serious implications in the future. And thanks for making that really clear because, like I said, I was not aware, and I'm sure probably some of the people who are going to be listening to, to this episode, they're going to be surprised about it. And, and again, it, it was the cheapest, and, and, and that was big rumor I always heard throughout my life. I mean, listen, I, I'm very thankful to my parents. I am an immigrant myself. My parents were immigrants from Spain. Um, and I was born in the Big Apple, New York City. Very proud of being American. Very proud of being a European Spaniard. Um, so I know what my parents went through to try to get their, you know, legality form here. So what they did was they, not to create that kind of headache for me and my sister, we were born in New York. So, and I'm, I, I think that I'm so thankful for, to them to that. Besides the point that I have dual nationality, which a lot of nations allow you to have that. And I still mm-hmm. provide. Uh, one of the things is when, and, and again, I know that if we, let's talk about the good side. You fall in love. Everything's beautiful. There's really not, quote, unquote, an interest of why or who you're paying <laughs> to, to obtain, you know, your, your marriage. Um, so let's suppose it's all, uh, uh, you know, uh, a good life and in, in, in full love. Um, and you find your, your, your true soulmate, whatever you want to call it. If that's the case, when they start the process of getting married, I know from my end, they usually apply for what's called um, a tax uh, identification number. That way they can start paying into taxes and they can start paying Social Security, Medicare, right? Because, again, we want you to do a contribution to this country, not to take, but to give. <laughs> so from your end, they can come to you, right? I mean, Tamina, they can come to you and say, okay, look, um, this is our situation. And I'm sorry about that. And, That's and, okay. And, and you can help them in the process of making sure that even after they're, they're legally married by City Hall, that they can come to an attorney like you to specialize in immigration and say, okay, we got married, here's the paperwork, and you can help them through the process too. I think this is important that we bring this up because it's not only for business investors, it could be for single students that came here and they found love. That's right. That's right. And often we see people before they get married, you know, often people would say things like, you know, my family isn't here yet. We're trying to get them over. And then they hear about the process taking so long. Then they say, you know, they'll go to the courthouse and they'll get married. So I see them sometimes before they get married, sometimes they get after it. But the, the entire process depends on marriage. So there'll be a lot of forms to fill out, lots and lots of forms. The U.S. citizen will file a form saying, I'm a U.S. citizen, this is my spouse, let my spouse have a green card. And then the spouse will fill out a form saying, I'm entitled to a green card, please let me have it. But by virtue of that form, right. by virtue of that form, they will be able to file for a temporary work permit as well as a temporary um, travel permit. Now, some people don't have social security numbers. No, they don't. But once you apply for the work permit, wow. which incidentally under this administration is taking six months. It used to take 90 days. So now it's taking six months. It's a long time to wait. But once you get that card, that permission, you would go to the social security office and that's when you would get a social security number. And that's when you can start working. And then approximately 18 months to 24 months later, Right. The couple will then have an interview with immigration with an immigration officer, and they'll ask a lot of questions, very intimate questions. They can I even ask. About that. <laughs> yeah, some of the questions could be like, "When was the last time you had relations?" Meaning, 
when was the last time you basically had sex? And Ooh. you know, that's uh, you know, that was a question that was asked of me when I had my interview. I'm an immigrant as well, and uh, I got a green card through marriage. Um, and I was like, oh my gosh, did they just ask that question? That's kind of that's um, kind of personal. What's going on here, right? Yeah. I mean, excuse me. Don't don't I need a little privacy here? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, the officer, my lawyer objected and the officer said to the, my lawyer that consummating the marriage is compulsory. And so they, 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 they asked that. So when it, I've been practicing for, you know, over uh, since 2006 and I've only had that question come up twice. And, um, it's not something that every officer asks, but you have to be prepared for it. Um, so, you know, uh, it, it's an interesting time in the world of immigration. Because this administration is narrowing the paths, all of the paths for immigrating to the U.S. And just yesterday, and you've mentioned this many times, that you want people, the government wants the immigrants to contribute. You know what's what's interesting is immigrants are hardworking contributors to the economy. They I are, whether they're working in the farming industry or the high tech industry. They're all hard workers because they come from a different country and they're establishing themselves and they all have skills and the desire to achieve the American dream, you know, and they, they work towards that. And it's evident. If you look at the Fortune 500 companies, more than about 40% of them are immigrant owned or children of immigrants that have created them. But yesterday, this is fresh off um, fresh, 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 fresh press. <laughs> so the, U, the USCIS has published new proposed rules about um, public charge. When is somebody a public charge? And so this notion that immigrants have to contribute is being taken to a level where it is going to be so difficult in the future for these, even these marriage cases to be successful because they want to see that the immigrant who is coming to the U.S. also has an income, also is, you know, above the poverty guideline. And they, ha they are putting in a lot of different, very, very um, drastic restrictions here. So I would ask your um, listeners and viewers to sign up to my blog, which is at www watsonimmigrationlaw.com because all the news that is coming out of this administration is so fast and so furious it that is. it's very difficult for even an immigration attorney to keep up, let alone a lay person. So if they sign up, they'll be able to get notification. And if it's something that applies to you, you can contact me or at least be aware. Thank but this public charge is actually rules are going to be very drastic. They're going to affect a lot of people who have not been affected before. One of the things that will be affected are people who sponsor um, these green cards. You know, there's going to be a bond for it, you know, um, $10,000 bond before you can sponsor somebody. Many, many different layers of restrictions. So what happens as of yesterday, is that there is a 60-day comment period. The public can comment on the rules saying whatever is on their mind because the government is supposed to take those comments, mm -hmm. assess them, see if they want to implement anything, and then the final rules can often look different. But what we want to do is make sure that these rules do not go into effect 
or they're drastically different because the face of immigration is going to change dramatically once these proposed rules go into effect. Once they get implemented, it's going to be, yeah, it sounds like it to me. So anyhow, uh, Tamina, you know, it, it's been such an honor to have you, my show really has been. I need to kind of wrap up at this point. I know that we talked about right before the recording, and please really briefly, um, you are an author, so you have your book, and you are also, well, you were in a radio show, like you mentioned to me earlier, um, but you also have your podcast, which is phenomenal, and, you, and you're a contributor to one of those. Uh, mention those names that way people can no. look into. Well, thank you. Thank you again, Liz, for having me. This has been a pleasure. And to speak to an expert like yourself who understands the implications is just a a, a delight. So I am, I I have my own practice. I have my own law firm with uh, several employees uh, at Watson Immigration Law. Uh, My podcast is a radio show show turned into a podcast, and it's called Tamina Talks Immigration. And it can be found on iTunes and other podcast um, outlets. Um, I do have a book. It's called the Startup Visa. Startup Visa, okay. It's uh, and it can be found on um, Amazon or Barnes and Nobles, Excellent. and it's about people who want to have startup companies in the U.S. Because we don't have a visa specifically for those who start companies, you have to use these various visas uh, that currently exist. And you have to make sure that you make the requirements work for you. Um, and what, one of the things that I've done recently is I just started a new nonprofit. It's called Washington Immigrant Defense Network. Oh, and what it will do is given that we have seen from the zero tolerance policy and all the policies that are currently being implemented that will result in more people going into the immigration court in the deportation proceedings, we just don't have enough immigration lawyers in the courtroom. So we are going to provide a a small uh, fee for the immigration lawyer and we're going to um, have them grouped with non-immigration lawyers and then where they go, they're going to essentially work pro bono on cases. Okay. So okay. the website is widenlaw.org. Thank you okay. so much, Liz, Thank for having me. Thank you so me. much. God bless you for all your information. I really appreciate it. And again, folks, like I said, you know, it's really worth making an investment. Please get into, you know, hiring someone that knows what they can do for you. Do it the right way from the beginning. Avoid the headache. Avoid the waste of time. Um, so, Tamina, we know where to reach thank you. And I hope we stay in touch. And thank you once again for being with us. Thank and, you. And, and I think you and I, we're going to need to do other episodes because I have a lot of people from Canada and other places. So, thank I you. I cannot for- wait. Please remember to like, share, and definitely, like I say, reach out to Tamina if you have any questions through my podcast or possibly even the YouTube. You can make comments, and I'd be happy to pass on those questions to her. Um, so thank you. Take thank care. Thank you so much. We'll see you soon, okay? We'll be in touch. Thank you, everyone. Okay, bye.